Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now we're in fundraising mode and the phone lines are open, but we had this unique one-time opportunity to speak with my guest today. He is renowned throughout the United States and he's here for a special Hawaii Health at Work Alliance supported by UHA Health Insurance. We have Dr. David Honeycutt here in the studio. He has a PhD in preventative medicine and leadership, former CEO of Wellcoa, which is a workplace wellness group, and he's here to share his expertise on what it takes to survive in the modern world, summed up in one very important word, resilience. Dr. David, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Now, what makes resilience so important? Do we have a problem right now? What's, are, we, are we becoming too rigid in what we do? Are we letting technology take over our lives? Why do we need to be resilient? That's a great question. But, you know, if you think about it, resilience, if you could pick one skill, one characteristic, one attribute to, to embrace, it's the idea of being able to bounce back, to get up one more time than you get knocked down. If you can do that, you got a shot. You will have a perpetual shot at, you know, accomplishing the things that you want and living the life that you want to live. That's how important resilience is. The interesting thing about this is that resilience really is a learned skill. Um, you know, and it's more important now than ever before because we're living in a crazy time. I mean, we're experiencing things that have never been experienced before in recorded history. I mean, one of the things that's happening is that right now, you know, especially for working people, we're in the midst of a workplace that is home to five generations. That's never happened before. And when you think about five generations all trying to make uh, work and productive in workplaces, you're talking about five different generations who have five different outlooks on life, who have five different methods of communication, who have five different desires of what they want from work, all trying to exist at the same time. And that can isolate people. So that's describing sort of the baby boomers, maybe at the top end of that age range, going all the way down to the young 18, 20, 24-year-olds who are entering the workplace. Five different levels of different generations. We talk about different, we, we describe them Gen X or all these different types of labels. But really, what we're describing is how can you make your workplace adaptable when you're looking at these age ranges, these expectations from these different individuals, and also their own skill levels, which are different in different areas. Absolutely. And it's so important because think about this. You know, if you're working with all of these diverse groups and different ages, and if you can't consciously communicate and if you can't connect and synchronize with those around you, you have a tendency to feel like you're isolated. Like, you know, it's get up, go to work, go home and go to bed because I have nothing in common with the people around me. And it's very hard to see, you know, day in and day out if you can't connect with the people at work what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? And people have a tendency when they get into that situation to want to push away and to want to be isolated and in many instances just get give up. Well, and they get disengaged. And I think that's one of the real big issues with a lot of people. You know, they're always talking about employee engagement. Why is that important? Employee retention to have a productive workplace. So we're looking at some of the reasons why people need to look at resilience 
how does technology play a role in this? Because part of what I often think about is, you know, if you go to your job and your job uses computers minimally, maybe, and then you go home and you don't want to log on or you don't want to necessarily be in a computerized situation at home, technology is advancing so fast that so much of what we do every day is dependent upon this interaction electronically. It almost allows you to be socially isolated out of choice. Yeah, I mean, and that's the that's the challenge. It's a double-edged sword with, with technology for sure. One of the interesting things about technology, when you just take a look at the information age, right, there's been more information produced in the last 50 years than in the previous 5,000. It just blows me away. I mean, that's incredible. And, you know, when you take a look at the rate that it's going to change, you know, in the future by 2020, 2025, we're looking at the information's world supply or the world's information supply doubling every eight days. So when you think it's a lot now, imagine what the the technologies are going to allow. Now, a lot of times people say, well, not everybody has the Internet. How many people in the United States actually have Internet access? Well, you know what's interesting about this? There's a great study that just came out taking a look at, you know, some 98% of people in the United States have uh, cable and Internet access. And roughly the same amount have indoor plumbing. It's almost becoming like we would think of having a bathroom. Right. I mean, it's really remarkable. Now, here's the interesting thing is that when you take a look at technology, right, we rely on technology so much. I mean, people are going to probably answer in the neighborhood of 25 to 50 to 125 emails a day. They're going to have 10 to 25 phone calls. They're going to have 67 texts. They're going to check their Facebook page 14 to 15 times a day. So what's interesting about this is that even though we're, you know, we're sitting next to people, we use these technology communication vehicles. And it's kind of like eating Cheetos. You know, you eat them all night, you're still hungry at the end of the night, and all you have is orange fingers to show for it. And so what happens here is that it further isolates us from the people around us. And it really, again, causes people to think, what is this all about? The other part, which is really a challenge in this, is that with so much information taking place right now, People have to make a lot of decisions during the course of the day, a lot. And in fact, not only do they have to make a lot of decisions, they also have to change tasks a lot during the course of the day. And that is fatiguing. Anytime you have to make a lot of decisions and change tasks, it's fatiguing. And so by the end of the day, people are completely wiped out. And again, that's where I think people begin to lack resilience because they say, listen, I'm just getting my southern hemisphere kicked on a regular basis here. Why am I doing this? And, you know, how many of us haven't asked ourselves that question? You have a really busy day at work. You go home. You're like, I I just don't even want to handle anything. I just want to passively watch TV, maybe just not even interact with other people. And it starts that whole idea of isolation. And, in fact, technology, as much as it's doubled the amount of information that's out there, it's also made us need to realize that we can't completely grasp all of that information ourselves, that it seems it may be so overwhelming that we have to pick and choose where we put our attention and what we spend our time and our focus on or else we'll get overwhelmed There's way no, too easily. No question about that. I mean, there has to be a sense of deliberateness in terms of how we're going to interact with this technology. I mean, you're a physician by training. And so the interesting thing about this is that when you take a look at the number of decisions that physicians have to make on a daily basis, the number of tasks that they have to turn, the number of people that they have to see, 
and um, the amount of information that they have to process, there's no question that physicians make better decisions in the morning and then progressively more difficult decisions or you know less accurate decisions toward the end of the day. And that all has to do with that decision fatigue. And it's such a challenge because for physicians, you're going to have to do it day in and day out. And most people in, in organizations have no idea that this is happening to them, except that they're very tired and exhausted at the end of the day. So make sure you see your doctor in the morning. <laughs> All right, I'm here with Dr. Daniel Honeycutt, and he is currently helping out with a wonderful conference that's going on here in the islands. He's just here for a couple of days. We have this unique opportunity to talk with him, and we're talking about the word that has really made his his mission in life called resilience. And when we talk about you know, we talk about seeing somebody in the morning as, you know, as me as a physician. I know by the late afternoon I'm getting tired and I know that I just don't have the same speed as I do in the morning. And so when we when we think about, you know, my job is one thing, what about other workplaces? When you're in your standard workplace, is there this sense that people are much more productive in the morning? And how can we help them to be able to keep that level of energy up all day long? Man, that is a great question. And that's the $64,000 question. The thing that's interesting about this is that virtually everybody is going through this right now. I mean, right now, the workplace is so fast-paced. There's so much information. But the way to think about it is really kind of in, in two terms. One is this concept of energy. Energy is a big deal. It's a very important deal to resilience. If you can keep your energy up, you can stay on top of this and you can feel like you have some sense of control and to be able to execute these things during the day. The interesting thing about this is that most people have exactly the wrong image of energy in their brains. And think about this. Your image really will kind of influence your thoughts. Your thoughts dictate your actions. So if you have the wrong image of energy, you're going to have the wrong actions. So what's the right image of energy? Well, here's the interesting thing. Most people think of energy as kind of the gas tank. And how many times have people said, oh, I'm running on empty, my gas tank is low, I'm out of gas? That's the image that they carry. The thing that's fascinating about this is that if that were the appropriate image and you were out of gas, you would have to stop and refuel because you could not move on. You couldn't take another step. But the interesting thing is the better image is really more like a checking account, is that you do have money in your checking account and you can write checks. But even though you're out of money, you can keep writing checks and then you can turn to credit cards and you can go into negative spending. The only problem with that is, is that when you overdraft your checking account or when you spend money that you don't have, now you're going to have to pay it back with interest. That's what happens with our energy is that we can spend it down and run negative deficits. But the problem is, is it's going to take a significant toll on us. And that's what most people don't see. So that would be the, I had to stay up late last night to a project, or I was up late watching television, or I was reading late and then didn't get enough rest the next day. Do you think people in general are getting enough hours of sleep? Absolutely not. I mean, we are so sleep deprived. I mean, it's really remarkable. And in fact, you know, 
realistically, by, by human design, we really need to have between eight and nine hours of sleep. And they really need to come at a very good time, at a very opportune time. Um, but we're not getting that. In fact, you know, the typical American is probably getting in between somewhere five and six hours of sleep. We know that the significant percentage of population wakes up unrested in the morning. They don't feel fresh. And again, we have the wrong image of this because we think, well, you know what? It's just sleep. I can make it up on the weekend. The problem is, is that when we start running that negative deficit, we start to see all kinds of problems take place. And so this idea of sleep becomes very big. And think about this. What is your resilience quotient when you are sleep deprived? A lot of people are thinking, you know what, why am I doing this? What is the purpose of my life? Why am I involved in this? I'm constantly tired. And that's when people want to think, you know, again, I, I don't know if I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm looking for something else. You're like describing everyone's midlife crisis, and they don't even have to be midlife. It could happen for anybody if you're not getting the rest. You know, certainly you're not getting the the energy that you need, the replenishment, and medically it also affects your body too. I mean, it. we just know... I know I see in my patients it causes problems with blood pressure, cholesterol, oxygen level, you name it, blood sugars go up, all sorts of different things can happen when people don't have that ability to really focus on having the rest that they need to avoid getting sick and becoming susceptible to medical conditions when they get older. It really does make a big difference. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio. Today, we have a live show during Pledge Central with Dr. David Honeycutt. He has a PhD in preventative medicine and leadership. He's here for a unique conference this week, and we had this great opportunity to talk with him. But now we're going to head to Pledge Central, where they're learning to be resilient, because in order to keep this whole operation going, we need to hear from you. And we'd love to get your call. Let's head to Pledge Central and see how we're doing. And welcome back. We're right here in the studio live. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. David Honeycutt, and he's here talking about a very important word that really we could all learn from, and that word is resilience. Now, right before our last pledge break, and by the way, phone lines will be open the entire time, we were talking a little bit about what are the consequences of some of the things that are going on now, not just personally, but also what technology has offered us and some of the ways in which those opportunities often provide challenges as well. Now, Dr. Honeycutt, you're here because UHA has brought you here to talk about workplace wellness. Why would employers be interested in trying to keep people well? That's a great question. But if you think about it, you know, at the end of the night, 95% of a corporation's assets walk out the door and into the parking lot every single night. And so culture and a healthy work environment and a great place to work is what keeps them coming back. And the smart employers are beginning to really understand this, that the most important asset they have are their people. And the days of get up, go to work, go home and go to bed, those are long gone. People are realizing that you can create a great place to work and you can help people bounce back. And if you do that, everybody wins. So employers put a lot of money, time and effort into training their employees, into providing them with the tools they need to work and do their job. 
But then when we talk about things like extra sick days or somebody not doing and producing to their fullest capacity because they don't feel fully engaged at work, these are some of the reasons why employers are looking at it saying it would be a lot And I hate to say the word cheaper, but it would be a lot cheaper to invest the money that we are investing in employee turnover in employee wellness. If we can keep our current employees healthy, well engaged and excited about their job, they're going to want to do more and they're going to help us with our bottom line. Well said. I mean, that's exactly the point that employers are getting to is that it's so expensive to replace people and so hard to find people and so difficult to onboard people. And then there's the intangible of, you know, creating and recreating the relationships that existed. That's that's really the the opportunity for employers. And there are a lot of very good and progressive employers that are getting it. And in fact, you know, with um, the Hawaii Health at Work Alliance, the conference tomorrow is going to be a collection of employers who are coming to actually discuss how can we do this for workplaces. What are some of the ideas of how a workplace could make their environment so enriching that people want to be there and they want to do their best? Yeah, you know what? It's a great question, and there's some pretty cool things that are happening. We know that people bounce back, and we know that people are resilient when they feel a sense of purpose in what they're doing. Now, the interesting thing is the vast majority of employees do not feel a sense of connection to work and do not feel a sense of purpose. And in fact, a lot of employers now are beginning to help employees to understand why they're doing the work that they're doing and to try to help them to turn ordinary jobs into extraordinary jobs. So really it's about identifying the why. Why is it you're doing what you're doing? And how does this piece fit into the greater whole? So that if you're a housekeeper working at a hotel, how is your job so important in the greater picture of running a hotel? If you're a nurse working at a hospital, how is your particular job taking care of that one, two, or three patients that you have the most important thing that you could do as part of a bigger, broader mission? So understanding your place and your role And being able to do the best that you can with what your job is because you know the why. Absolutely. I mean, think about this. In a healthcare setting, uh, you know, there's an East Coast hospital that now has been going through. The concept is called job crafting. And they're working with all of their employees from top to bottom to help them understand why they're doing what they're doing. Why does the hospital exist? What role do they play in the caregiving team for everybody, all the way from the CEO to, you know, the chief of, of neurosurgery down to the custodians? And in fact, one of the custodians was talking about her experience in having someone help her turn an ordinary job into an extraordinary one. And they said, well, you're the custodian here. And she said, no, I'm not. I'm part of the caregiving team. My responsibility is to make sure that patients have a spotless room, that they have a clean room. I'm here to help prevent infection. When I go into a room, they can count on me for a smile. They can count on me for, you know, a a fabulous um, experience as a patient. And you know what? She said, for the first time in my life, I feel like what I do is important. And that is how this whole thing works. If you want people to bounce back and you want them to come back every single day carrying great messages, great energy, and interacting with clients and with customers, you got to give them something to come back for. And that's what a lot of people are doing in terms of turning ordinary jobs into extraordinary ones. So how can employers look at this idea 
And, you know, we talked about healthcare, but some of the organizations that are coming to the conference are airlines, are local businesses, are, you know, different elements of different businesses in society, not just healthcare, but also in other business areas. And how does, are there certain principles that work for everybody? I mean, should everyone say to themselves, why do I do what I do? And feel as though, how do they get that sense that what they do is so important? You take a step back and you really ask yourself, why does this matter? What is the greater good that we're all about? And you know what? It's a tough question initially because people are so transactionally based. But when you start thinking about transforming the way that you do work so that there's dignity, that there's a sense of purpose, there's a sense of meaning, there's a sense of contribution to the greater good, some pretty remarkable things happen. I'll give you an example. I was working with a sporting goods store. Now, sporting goods, I mean, people sell, you know, sporting goods. You know, they're they're retailers. So... I was working with one of their uh, salespeople, and they were going to show me around this store. And I said, so what is it that you do here? And she said, well, it depends on who you ask. And I said, well, you're here. I'm asking you. And there you go. Yeah. And she said, you know, most people would say that I'm a salesperson, but I'm not. I inspire people to love and cherish the great outdoors. And I kind of looked at her and I said, you know, I didn't think that was going to come out of your mouth here. But, you know, it really is kind of interesting and intriguing. So she took me through the store, right? And we went into the tent section. And she said, what's this, David? And I said, it's a tent. And she said, no, it's not. Look closer. And so I looked at it again, and I looked at the tag, and I said, that's a very expensive tent. (laughs) And she said, no, she said, that's not it. And she pulled back the flap, and she said, get in the tent. And so I went in the tent, and there was a cot in there. She said, lay down. And she said, this is is the most important memory that you're going to have with your family. Imagine you with your family in the, in the great outdoors with the moon and the wind coming through and the conversations that you're having. She said, we don't sell tents. This is one of the most important memories that you're going to have. And she said, and if you get sick or you have a challenging time in your life, this is the memory that you're going to want to come back to. This is the memory that you will draw upon. And so it was really interesting. Then she took me into the fly fishing section, and she said, what's this? And I said, it's a fly rod. And she said, no, it's not. It's a $350 an hour therapist you never could afford. And she said, have you ever been fly fishing? And I said, well, not like that. And she said, when, you know, when you're out and you're, you're going through this entire experience and the epiphanies are coming, she took me into the shoe section, and she, she uh, gave me boots. And she didn't ask me this time because she knew I wasn't going to answer. I wasn't, you know, wasn't going to kind of fall into this. And she said, hold out your hands. And she put my hands inside these boots. And she said, where are these boots taking you? And I said, well, they're taking me toward the water. And she said, a lake or an ocean? I said, no, a lake. And she said, what does the sky look like? And she said, what's the temperature? She said, why do you want to go to the waterfront? Who's there? What are you going to experience? And I went through this whole circumstance and situation with her, and she built this scenario. And when I was done... I was. Com- you had a very big cart. I you had was- a tent and a fishing rod and some boots, and there you go. And, and I was totally transformed because she 
took the ordinary and made it extraordinary. And this is why the group that I was working with is the best in the world, because they don't have salespeople. They have people who teach people to uh, you know, inspire and, and love the great outdoors. That's what turning the ordinary into the extraordinary is, and any business can do it. Can anyone at that business do it? Absolutely. So I look at it and I say, okay, I am an employee of a major hospital here in the islands, and yet I also have staff in my office that look to me as if I am their employer. Now, technically, logistically, I'm not, but I had our team, our little team. If I want to inspire them, do I have to wait for my employer to inspire me? Absolutely not. I think it's asking the right questions. I think for too long we've been telling people the right answers. We haven't been asking the right questions. What does someone see in this job? What contribution do they feel that they're making? I'll give you an example. Again, in, in a situation like yours, you're probably going to have a receptionist, someone who's going to answer the phone. Well, that job was probably put out there as recruiting a receptionist. But realistically, that's not a receptionist. That's the voice of the organization. They actually, your, your patients, your clients, talk to that person before they talk to you. This person has a huge role in the organization. And that's the idea of rethinking what it is we do and why it's important and that notion of turning the ordinary into the extraordinary. The notion from a science perspective is called job crafting, and it's going to be the next 20 years. You're going to see an extraordinary change in how we approach work, including employees in this and really kind of uncovering their why and engaging them in this. And when you do that, they have a reason to come back to work the next day. But it's got to be more than just changing the words. It's got to be more than, you know, you had to buy into the idea of here I am wearing these boots, sleeping in this tent, creating memories with my family. What makes someone go from the transition of, hey, I answer the phone to, hey, you're the voice of my office. It's got to be more than just me saying to them, you're the voice of my office today. And from now on, what you say is going to represent all of us. How do you get that engagement and that buy-in? By giving people an opportunity to experience the, the uh, results of their jobs. Um, so, for example, when people when, – when your receptionist does a spectacular job, you want to make sure that they get a chance to hear that, that they get a chance to experience the feedback, that they get a chance to revel in their accomplishments. They also need to be included as part of the caregiving team because, you know, so many people are left out. Like, for example, the custodian. Most custodians, they're never going to be part of a strategic discussion. In hospitals of the future, custodians play a huge role because of cleanliness, because of infection, because of nosocomial, those kinds of things. But making sure that people feel connected, that they're part of the larger uh, and greater good, and that's going to take very strong leadership to do that. And so that leadership can come from within that hierarchy of an organization. It can come from me with my little pod. It could also come with different departments. But it doesn't ha we don't have to wait for the CEO or CMO or whomever to really take this to the next level. No, and that's the beautiful part about it. If you want to build resilience, right, turn the ordinary into the extraordinary. And the thing that's so cool about it is that for the longest time, it's always been the grass is greener somewhere else. 
The and grass you know, is never greener everywhere else. And, and you know what? And you know what the reality is? The grass is greener where you water it. And life is made up of all of these ordinary moments. I mean, that's what life is. It is ordinary moment after ordinary moment after ordinary moment. And people who really get the most juice for the squeeze from life are people who turn the ordinary into the extraordinary. And it's an attitude and it's free. All right. Well, I'll tell you, I love that idea. The grass is greener where you water it. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Honeycutt, and he is working on helping us all become more resilient. And we need to water some grass right here at Hawaii Public Radio. And we are in the midst of fundraising. Let's go to Pledge Central, see how we're doing. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Honeycutt, and we are hoping that you have heard the message, want to help support the station. The phone lines are open. I know a lot of people have called during the show throughout the year, and now if you make that call to 941 941- 3689 or toll free from our neighbor islands 877-941-3689 you're going to hear some even more exciting voices and you're we're going to be able to continue to provide this wonderful programming for you now today we had a unique opportunity normally during pledge drive we may play a previous show but we had dr david honeycutt who's here for a wonderful conference being put on the hawaii health at work alliance And so far, we've talked a little bit about why do we need to build this concept of resilience? How can we use strategies from employers to employees to really help us to understand where we fit in the grand scheme of things, to get re-energized and passionate about what we're doing enough that it makes us get so engaged, we look forward to going to work every day rather than just trudging along, just trying to get a paycheck. Now, there's a lot of things, Dr. David, that that people can do individually themselves. In order for someone to come to work at their peak performance level, there has to be some self-care that they do on their own. Because if they're not taking care of their own needs, they may not be able to come to work and really bring their all. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when you look at it, the work, the, the work day is so demanding that we've been talking about, you know, just trying to help people get through the workday. We really almost have to look at it as training for elite athletes. I mean, we really need to be on top of this whole energy thing. The first thing, if someone wanted to be resilient when it comes to self-care, is really taking a look at nutrition. And we want to be careful here because nutrition has been beaten with a baseball bat in a million different contexts. And Most people, when you mention nutrition, their eyes kind of roll back in their head and they think, oh, man, the dead have come to bury the living, and they just shut it out. The thing that's important is that when you think about nutrition, instead of thinking about weight, instead of thinking about low fat, instead of thinking about proteins, carbohydrates, and and fats, we need to start thinking about eating whole foods. And whole foods are those things that are close to their original form. The thing that's powerful about whole foods is that when we get hungry, our brains are really, in essence, telling us, eat, because I'm running low on glucose. I can't make the decisions. I can't keep you as happy and as healthy and as energized during the course of the day unless you feed me. So our brains tell us, feed me. 
When you eat whole foods, like for example, if you were to eat an apple or if you were to eat whole foods like a carrot or something like that, when you eat those, it goes into your body and your body begins searching for nutrients. Those foods are filled with nutrients. And your brain says, looking for nutrients, looking for nutrients. Ah, that's exactly what I need. Guess what? Full, stop eating, I can get on to everything else. But when we don't pay attention to whole foods and we say, nah, I don't know, I'm thinking a Pop-Tart might be good or maybe a Snickers bar, then what your body does in essence is to say, searching for nutrients, searching for nutrients, there are none in that food group. And your body then says, look, let's take that and store that someplace else. And it tells you still hungry. Still searching for nutrients. Correct. And so when and you don't have to be exclusively vegan. You don't have to be exclusively whole foods. You do need to eat some whole foods regularly during the course of the day because when you do that, you give your brain the nutrients it needs that says, you know what, you're energized. Now you can get back into flow where you don't notice the work around you. You don't have to be tired because you have the right nutrients. So the first thing really is to think whole foods, not exclusively too hard to do, but definitely whole foods on a regular basis. And honestly, you feel better when you do that. If you grab something quick on your way to work and you're eating something like a Pop-Tart on your way to, to get to your office, you don't feel so good when you get there. Right. If you take the time to have fruit, to have a banana, to have an apple, to have an orange, you actually physically feel better. Because your brain is happier. And, you know, you have to think about this. You know, this is where it takes a certain level of kind of connecting the dots and thinking chess, not checkers. Because of technology, we're working longer than we've ever worked before, 47 hours a week, which is probably the equivalent of another month and a half compared to our counterparts in 1979. The interesting thing is three quarters of working Americans, that's 125 million people roughly, have no idea what they're going to have for dinner at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. No idea. And that means that if you have no idea, it's either going to be eating out or fast food. Because remember, you're tired at the end of the day. You've given everything, right? Your brain is saying, just feed me something. And Are you stalking me, David? <laughs> Are you following me around? Because that happens a lot. Is that, you know, your brain just says, eat something quick. You need nutrition quick. Where can I get something quick? So what should we do differently? Well, the interesting thing is is definitely to be conscious and to be aware of it because 130 million uh, people are going through that every single day in terms of working Americans. The thing that's interesting is the typical American will spend about a half an hour cooking a day. That's the least of the all of the OECD nations. And the interesting part about this is for people who spend less than an hour in the kitchen actually preparing their meals, they're far less healthy than everyone else. And the thing that we've really got to do is to realize that whole foods are the key to feeling good. Whole foods are the key to keeping you energized. And when you start plugging into whole foods, and it's very simple once you start you know, to, to work through the planning of this, the feeling alone will keep you resilient. That's the part that keeps you coming back. In all honesty, I don't know how people, you know, who are not getting whole foods during the course of the day really can keep coming back day after day after day because it's almost impossible because of your energy levels are so depleted. Well, and then two things will happen. The first one is you'll start to have medical conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And the second thing that will happen is that if you don't get in the right nutrition, 
you won't be at your peak level of performance, but you'll go home at the end of the day, eat your quick takeout food and crash. And you have no energy. You can't do any exercise. You can't do any physical activity, which is also another key component. Physical activity is a big deal. And in fact, physical activity is the magic bullet. If we, there's not a pill in the world that can give you the benefits of physical activity. And it sounds cliche, but, you know, physical activity can reduce the risk for coronary heart disease. It reduces the risk for stroke. Every disease I could think of. Right. And and the, the key is is really getting, you know, anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes during the course of the day. If you do that, you're in the sweet spot. The thing that's so important, though, is that, when people hear this, they're going to say, you know what, I need to get physically active again. And then what they're going to do is they're going to go out um, and walk 10,000 steps today when the last time they exercised might have been Woodstock, 69 or 99, and they're going to wake up in the morning and they're going to say, that didn't make me feel good. No, my feet hurt, my knees hurt, my back hurts, so it's not really going to be motivational. Right, and you've got to, you've got to take very small steps. And rather than thinking an hour of, of continuous physical activity or 45 minutes of continuous activity, think of short bursts during the course minutes, of the day. 10 15 minutes. And, you know, there are lots of organizations right now that are uh, allowing employees and encouraging employees to be up. So four minutes, let's say, for example, of just moving, getting the blood flowing, three of you know, any type of of muscular activity, two of stretching, one of breathing. It's a 10-minute workout. You can do it at your desk. You don't have to sweat. You don't have to change. It doesn't have to be this huge production. But nutrition and physical activity are a critical part of being resilient because if you don't have those things, you go home tired every day and you come back tired. And the interesting thing is, is that if you can feel good and physical activity and nutrition will get you there, you get into a thing that's called the flow. And flow is what work is all about. It's what makes work great. When you're working on something that you're good at and you're in flow, there's nothing better. It's magical. But when you're hungry, you immediately come out of flow. When you're, when you're stiff or sore, you immediately come out of flow. So physical activity and nutrition are going to be a big part of the equation. Now, there's Another element to this, so you can follow the best nutrition, you can be exercising regularly, and if you don't have your mind in the right place, if you don't have that sense of gratitude for all the things that we do have, I mean, here we are living in the islands, we really can't complain about the weather, and yet if we have three rainy days, you better believe somebody's complaining about the weather. So we have so many things that we are blessed with that often we forget to realize. You know, I often find that the best thing to do right before April 15th when you pay your taxes is go travel to a developing country. And all of a sudden, you will not mind paying your taxes on April 15th because you will see all that we have here. How can we make people or how can we encourage people to want to be more grateful for what they have already? You know, you're you're all over it. I think the first thing is just understanding the definition of gratitude, because gratitude is really saying, I have been blessed with some remarkable things in my life, and then taking inventory of your life and saying, you know, even if it's a 68 Vega hatchback with Naugahyde seats and an 8-track player, you're saying, I have been blessed with this vehicle. It's something that I didn't deserve. And the key for gratitude is to count your blessings, but to realize that those things are in your life and you don't deserve them. For whatever reason, by benevolent forces of the universe, for whatever, they are in your life and they've been given to you. 
When you do that, you start to see the glass not as half empty, not as half full, but as full and overflowing. Now, the interesting thing that we know about gratitude is when people give um, thanks for the blessings in their life, they spend less time thinking about themselves and more about how they can help other people. When that happens, now you really get into, you become very resilient because you realize, you know, it's not all about me. It's about making a contribution to the greater good. And my bucket is full and overflowing. I now realize that I've been blessed and I can help other people. When that happens, you experience not happiness because happiness is something that happens when you do something good for yourself. When you do something good for someone else, you experience fulfillment. And your brain on fulfillment is overwhelming in terms of good feelings. That's really the key is that you can buy a fancy car and feel great about it. But if you can actually look at the transportation you have and say, you know, I know that there are some other people who don't have a way to get around. I want to help them. I want to donate my car to the Kidney Foundation. I want to do something to help someone else. That's really the key. It's that that ability to find fulfillment. And fulfillment is never really found by something you get. The latest thing that you get for yourself, sooner or later, give it a few weeks, you're, the novelty is worn off and you're not that excited about it anymore. But really when you find the ability to move beyond yourself and to help the greater good of society, it's, it's like your brain is just all those neurons are firing in all the right places and you get that sense of euphoria because you feel like you've contributed. You've helped someone else. And when you do that, there's no feeling in it like the world. You know, and the interesting thing about it, it's a simple thing to do. And in fact, the concept is called three good things. Put a notepad next to your bed. Before you go to bed, just write down three good things in your life. Three things that you are grateful for that are in your life that you don't deserve, but you are appreciating them. Do you know that study after study after study will tell us that when people simply acknowledge three good things in their life, people are healthier, they're happier, and they're far more resilient, and it doesn't get any easier than that. All right, I've got my assignment for this evening. Three good things. I'm going to put the notepad right by my bed and make sure that I do that. I want to thank you again, Dr. David Honeycutt, for being here. This was their only opportunity to really hear about the amazing message on resilience. And I'm just grateful that you're going to be here at the Work Alliance Conference. We're going to head to Pledge Central, talk about being grateful. Here we go. We need to hear some gratitude from our listeners, too.